Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Take your Bible this morning and open to the letter of 1 Peter First Peter, we will be in chapter 2 in just a moment. First Peter chapter 2. While you're turning there, let me just introduce our message for today. We are in a series entitled Citizen Christian. We're talking today about what it means for Christians to be citizens in this world. Now, we, for the last two weeks, talked about the role of government. We began to build a foundation for what this would look like, and our citizenship should grow from that. But I want to begin by kind of framing our thinking this morning with some questions that I have heard, uh, not just recently, but more just in general, every time the subject comes up. And there are questions like this. Maybe you've heard them in some form or manner. Should Christians really engage in politics? Is this the right realm for us to exercise our Christianity in? Is it the best realm for Christians to impact the world for us to engage in politics? I mean, after all, isn't it illegal for the church to speak about politics? I know that stuck with some of you. Are you going to answer that? Am I going to have to stand up and answer it for them? Some say this, politics are about power. And, and shouldn't Christians just trust God's power to change people? That sounds spiritual, doesn't it? I'm going to tell you a little story about our church. Early, early on in LifePoint's young church life, the elder council was sitting around one night and we were discussing how best we could impact our city and impact the world. And we had talked about our missional uh, impact partners that were on the other side of the globe at the time. And we talked about our partnerships here. And, but we were talking about our influence as a body among the city as well. And how is it that we best engage to make a difference, to, to influence people for the sake of the gospel. And I'll never forget, I, I honestly, I know we discussed a wide array of strategies that night, but I only remember one comment from the whole conversation, and it was this. Frank Clark spoke up towards the end, as was very frank in the way he spoke. He said this, if we really want to make an impact, one important element will be that we encourage our people to run for and to hold public office. He was right then, he's still right today. You see, historically the church has made many mistakes as it is engaged in politics. But the one thing that we cannot do is to withdraw. And, and honestly, saying that Christians shouldn't engage in politics because power corrupts, it's kind of like saying, well, we shouldn't engage in business or finance or economics uh, because greed is a reality. Thought about that? It's kind of like saying, well, we, we shouldn't engage in the arts because, man, I've seen people paint some ugly stuff. We, we shouldn't engage in music because, man, I've heard some people sing some really stupid songs. I, I might argue there's a great industry of stupidity in the songs that are being sung today, but that's, again, another, um, another topic for another day. You see, friends, transformation is a fundamental value and a driving passion of the Christian faith. Carl Henry, the author for whose book title 
provided the subtitle for this whole series. He said this, a fundamental value that Christianity without passion to turn the world upside down is not reflective of apostolic Christianity. In other words, it's not biblical. That's what he's stating there. You see, the extent to which we believe that Jesus is Lord over all of creation will fuel our passion to cultivate every realm for the glory of God by the proclamation of the gospel and the salvation of people. And so as we turn our attention to Christian citizenship today, I want to take just a moment to challenge us, each and every one of us. Before we move into this topic, allow me to clarify my purpose so I don't just leave it hanging out there. But I have two aims in this specific message today and next week. Number one is to heighten the awareness of the Christian's responsibility and stewardship to engage in politics as a vital aspect of our public witness. So that's for every person. I want to heighten the awareness. But in a day and age when awareness seems to be too often the cumulative summation of any person's participation, I want to press further than that. And I want us to know that awareness is not enough for us to make known to the world. Participation is critical. And so I want to call us to greater engagement. Greater engagement by every Christ follower as is necessary, as you are able, and and to become a vital expression of our witness to Jesus as King and Lord of all. Now, I need you to understand what I'm asking you today. I'm not asking you to put out more political commentary. The last thing we need is more political opining and just waxing eloquently, or as is 99.9% of it, ineloquently, about politics. I'm not asking you to do that. I'm not asking you to create better memes to help us all understand more deeply what's taking place. No, friends, I'm asking you to consider prayerfully where God has you and how you can best engage politically and in not just politics, but the holistic realm of the public square And for some of you, it's simply a re-engagement. For some of us, it's an issue of of understanding the stewardship we have as citizens. See, in a day and time when political engagement seems life-threatening, and surely many good people have decided to get out of politics because the toll was just too high on their life and on their family. The words of the author Bruce Ashford still hold true for Christians. Withdrawal is not an option. It's not an option any more than it is in any other public realm or sphere. You see, withdrawal is not an option, not because the need of the world is great. Let me help you understand Christian mission for just a moment. We do not preach the gospel because the need is great. We do not serve the homeless, the hungry, the naked, or the thirsty because there's a bunch of them around us. That's not why we do what we do. We do what we do because Christ is worthy. We do what we do because God's word commands us to do that. We do what we do because his love for us compels us to go and do for others what he has done for us. Withdrawal is not an option because God's word is still true, friends. And in your engagement, I'm hoping and praying long, long term. Some of you, it may be more immediate, but definitely on the long game. I'm hoping and praying some of you will hear God's call 
and you'll take up the mantle, you'll run for office, and you'll sense a call from God on your life to enter and engage the public square with a faithfulness that is distinct to Christ and good for the sake of people. You see, building a theology of citizenship is not a simple process because there's any number of governments that are in the world today. And they all have their nuances and operate with those. But friends, I'm arguing in this, in this message today and subsequently next week that the gospel transcends them all to apply within them. And here's what I want us to understand. That Christians are called to live as good citizens. Prioritizing our identity in Jesus and bearing a faithful witness to his kingdom. The Christians are called to live as good Citizens. We'll talk more about what good citizenship means, but what I want you to understand at first is this word good, I don't just mean it in a nebulous, moralistic sense, but rather specifically according to God's designation. If you'll remember from last week, we saw in Romans chapter 13, verse 4, that, that the Bible says that government is God's servant for our good. And that word for good we talked about, again, was not just some nebulous, moralistic good, but rather it was the designation of God. It was the common grace. It was the general revelation that God created when he created all that is, that it is by his very nature and character to desire good for people. And this is fundamental to our understanding of engagement. And as the Bible teaches that, that government serves for our good, then the citizenship of Jesus' followers should reflect the good that God intends for all. And so Christian citizens should reflect that holistic well-being of life, of, of freedom. That's what we're going to see in 1 Peter here. And the advancement of people in the world, because that's God's will. That's what God intended when he ordained government for our Good. Now, I've drawn from Romans 13, and I'll continue to do that some, but I want to shift to 1 Peter 2 today for this message and next week's message, and I want us to unpack four very simple but concise verses. I like the angle that Peter takes, and that's why I want to use these verses, and I'll use Romans 13 uh, to help strengthen our position in building this theology. But let's look at 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to begin in verse 13, and I'll read through verse 17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. I'm going to run at this in a very direct manner. Between this week and next, I'm going to offer to you four foundational principles of a citizenship that is Christ-honoring. And I want to help you understand and frame for your own life how it is that you engage in the political sphere personally and individually as a faithful citizen, first of all of God's kingdom and then of the country and the nation within your citizenship where it is found. 
Principle number one that we will look at today, and of the four, you're only going to get one today. I'm going to go ahead and give you this. But the first principle that we look at frames everything else that we do. Principle one, Christian citizenship begins with the priority of our identity in Jesus Christ. Now with the four verses that I just read for us here, I want to draw this principle actually from the first 12 verses of chapter 2 that set it up. If you're going to understand any passage of Scripture, you have to understand not only the content of what the verses actually say, but you have to understand the context within which they're delivered. And that's where this principle comes from, specifically verses 1 through 12. When you look at 1 Peter chapter 1, he begins his letter with this glorious exultation of a hope that never perishes, spoils, or fades that we have. It is eternal in Jesus Christ. And he says, because of the hope that we've been given in Jesus, we are called to a holiness, to walk like Jesus walked, to be like Jesus is. And then as chapter 2 opens, because of our call to walk in holiness, he gives us this clarion call to all Christians in the world today to live as we have been redeemed in Jesus Christ because God is working through our lives. And he uses the analogy of stones and a building. And he says, you are stones and God is taking each one of you and he's building you together into a spiritual house. And so the work that God is doing in each one of us as an individual brick or stone is critical to what God wants to do through us in the world. And what God is doing with each individual stone, building us together as the church with every uh, mortar, shall we say, of situation and circumstance that glues and binds us together by the Lordship of Jesus Christ. In the midst of that, that is not inconsequential, nor is it happenstance. It is the work of God in the world today. And when we forget that, we'll forget what God has told us and commanded us in His Word. But when we remember that, we remember That God is doing his redemptive work by what he is doing in us and through us in the world. And then Peter culminates with this bold, radical declaration. One of a new identity because of Jesus Christ. And what does he say to us? But you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people of God. You see, friends, our hope in Jesus changes everything about our lives in this world because now we exist for this one purpose, to proclaim the excellencies of his glory. The way we live as citizens, friends, demonstrates the work that we believe God is doing through us in the world. This first principle reminds Christians two things, who we are and why we're here, what what it is that we're called to do in all of life. And as we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, we must begin here because it is our eternal citizenship in God's kingdom that defines our identity, who it is that we are, that Peter just set forth for us. But it not only defines our identity, it frames our understanding, our, our worldview, if you will, of what is going on in the world. And and friends, might I just say that that may be the principal point of competition that the world is vying for in you and I today to redefine the narrative of what is taking place in the world. But I'm going to tell you, God has the first and the last word. 
And he wants to frame our understanding by a gospel word that is better than what the world is purporting to us. And so it defines our identity. It frames our worldview. But listen to me. It establishes our purpose in the midst of that. It tells us why God has us here. And you see, seeking God's kingdom first defines our whole life because life only comes from the gospel. The gospel. And so we return to some of those questions. Is the gospel really political? Make you a little uncomfortable? It should. It should in our day and time. Matter of fact, it probably should make you more than just a little uncomfortable for a number of reasons. Reasons on either end of the spectrum. The spectrum being either of engagement or absentia. Is the political realm the right place for the Christian witness? Let me ask you a question. Do you think the political realm has surprised God in this day and time? Whether you believe this is the worst it's ever been or, or this is the most important election that we've ever had in our lifetime or the most vitriolic election of uh, America, what, whatever the case may be in the way that you've heard it framed or the way that you've come to see it, my question is just simply this. Is that an appropriate place for the Christian witness? Matthew 4, 23 to 25, at the end of Matthew's introduction to Jesus' ministry, and just before he moves in to the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, he introduces in verses 23, 24, and 25 why Jesus came to the earth. He introduces his ministry, and let me tell you what he says. He makes it clear that the day and time of Jesus' ministry was highly political. Jesus came announcing what? The kingdom of God is at hand. Is that not the promise of every politician every two or four years? I've got a new kingdom for you. It's going to bless you better than this old heap of trash that you've had before. Even if I've been here for 10, 20, 30, or 40 years building this heap of trash. I've got a new plan. Right? I mean, there's always a new kingdom being promised. Let me tell you this. When Jesus came, he offered a perfect health care. Oh, now I've gone to meddling, have I not? The Bible tells us that when Jesus came, they brought all the sick and disease to him, and he healed every one of them. You tell me what politician wouldn't want to be able to promise and provide perfect healing to all at zero cost. Yeah, it's political. When Jesus came, the Bible tells us in these verses that the masses followed him. There's not a politician alive that's not a little jealous of that. If I could just get people to believe and follow me, right? And it tells us that in the midst of the fame of the masses, he ushered a call to follow him. Is that not the very call? Friends, listen to me. It was political to the core Why? Because Jesus brought an authority that the powers that be on this earth could not touch. That's what politics is all about. It's the right stewardship of power. Listen to this. When the Jews were looking for the Messiah, they were looking for a political figure. They wanted a greater David to ride in on a bigger white horse and to come with a sword that could not be defeated. Oh, he's coming. He's coming. It'll be his second arrival. His second coming. The Romans, 
They didn't really care who showed up as long as they didn't threaten their power. And they cried, Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, the peace of Rome, until somebody got a little too loud and then they, the peace of Rome, the peace of Rome. They just crushed them, right? But Jesus said to Pilate, you have no authority over me except what I give to you. Well, that had to be awkward in front of the crowd when he said that to him, right? I mean, here a man's about to condemn him to death on a cross, and Jesus says those words to him. There had to be a little tension in the air, friends. You see, in the world's eyes, everything about Jesus was political because his authority was a threat to earthly power. But Jesus' interest involved so much more. Consider the political inclusion, if you will, of Jesus' teachings. When Jesus taught in Matthew 6, his disciples how to pray, he said this, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now right there, he ushers in the reality of God's very being and presence as to where he seats himself at all times. But even that is a political statement. But if you didn't think that was a political enough, Jesus comes to the second phrase, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Friends, that's a political manifesto. Too often Christians have treated that phrase of the Lord's prayer like an escapist reality, like beam us up, get us out of here. But what that prayer does is to catalyze the prayer that says, win the heavens and come down. And make the reality in the here and now what is eternal in the heavenlies. And we willingly submit to your lordship. We willingly lay down our lives to your rule and to your reign. And we willingly engage to help this manifesto of your kingdom to come. Your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Carl Henry said the extent to which man centers his life and energy in the redemptive king now determines the extent of the divine kingdom in the present age. I have to ask, church, it's going to be painful though. You're going to feel a pinch and a sting as they tell you before you get a shot. I wonder if we know, let me set it up differently. I know that we are in the condition we are in today largely because the voice of the church has gone silent in the political realm. Oh, we've said a lot of things, but I don't think we've said the right things nor said them in the right way. And we've substituted our true authority as we've aimed at earthly power. But I need to remind us in this political manifesto of Jesus' kingdoms that the weapons with which we wage war are not the weapons of this world. They have divine power for tearing down strongholds. Bruce Ashford again says this, and this may be the most controversial statement I make in all of this series. The local church is the most important political community in our nation. The local church is the most important political community in our nation. Friends, listen. Christians must reject the idea that we are merely a voting block to be courted. And we must establish the conviction that we exist to labor in the here and now to bring good from God's kingdom to all people. 
The importance of the Christian church as a political force in the world serves a greater glory. Yes, the church as an organization should be careful how it participates in state matters. Why? Because the mission of the local church is so much greater than any matter of the state. But the church as an organism should infiltrate every realm of life to labor for God's glory by the gospel. You see, friends, listen, this is the crux of how Christian citizens engage in the public realm. We become a prophetic voice to God's good for the public conscience. A prophetic voice to God's good for the public conscience. Now, we've talked about how important the conscience is throughout this entire series. As a matter of fact, the first sermon I preached was the sermon on the Christian conscience. As in addition, in our community groups, we're studying over six weeks how it is, what the conscience is, and how we build it, how we guard it, and how we cultivate it for the glory of God. And as we declare the law and the truth of God in the world, this ought to resonate with us, friends. Why? Because we know the importance of the conscience. We know that God wove in, He crafted into every human being this human conscience, a way by which He could communicate directly to every individual. So when the chaos and the mudslinging is flying back and forth, if the Christian church will step in with a prophetic voice, we will transcend all the vitriolic communication that is being offered in the world and we will speak directly not from ourselves to people but from God who created a way to speak to all people in their very conscience. That's why the law and the gospel is so important. That's why a faithful witness and a faithful testimony is so critical for us because regardless of what's being spewed in the public realm, we have a mole on the inside for God. And if we'll bear a faithful witness, God will bring a fruitful work from all that he wants to do in the lives of people. It's that fruitful work that I want to point to now. I'm going to talk about three testimonies that shape how a Christian prioritizes their identity to declare God's good to people. So three testimonies that help us fulfill this first principle. And friends, i got to work fast here. Y'all are listening way too slow. And that's how I blame it on you. Three testimonies. Testimony number one. Christians testify to God's creational narrative as the context for the whole world. We testify to God's creational narrative as the context for the whole world. You see, Genesis records the beginning of all things. And it establishes our understanding for how it is that we view the world. We've already set that up. Our identity does that. And the Christian voice sets the world in the right narrative, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, so that we can address all things by the truth of God's word. Now, if you don't believe this is an issue, friends, I want to challenge you on that. And let me tell you what the current issue of our day is. Maybe the most vitriolic issue of our day is the field of anthropology, our fundamental understanding of humanity. And do you know why we have gotten there and how it is that we got there? It's been built upon the foundation of the theory of evolution. We've stripped creation from God's hand. And now we can redefine the apex of His creation, humanity. And as long as we allow that to transpire, it will be confusing, deceiving, and damning for people. But friends, we're not striving to make the world God's kingdom. We don't have to. It's already His kingdom. His kingdom. 
He is Lord of all creation. And we view the world under Jesus' lordship to look at what is and to point to the one who brings all true good to it. Listen to the old hymn, This is My Father's World. The first verse is all about creation. This is my Father's world and to my listening ears all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. In other words, the glory of God is in every sphere of life. If we will acknowledge His name and offer it to Him, I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees, of skies and seas. His hand, the wonders have wrought. What a glorious declaration of creation. Verse 3 moves from creation, though, to redemption. Listen to this. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. The battle is not done. Jesus, who died, shall be satisfied in earth and heaven be one. Friends, the gospel not only brings good, but it distinctively addresses evil and suffering to bring understanding, to bring meaning, to bring confrontation and ultimate victory. You see, without Jesus, there is no, uh, there is no good, there is no meaning in this world regarding suffering. Check the religions of the world. They either avoid the issue of pain and suffering and evil. They excuse it in some form. They remove it from their theological tenets. Or they completely deny it as something else. Often a figment of your imagination is just not real. No, that didn't hurt. I don't need you telling me what hurts. That's what the nurse does. You're going to feel a small pinch and a prick. No, I'm going to feel you shoving a needle in my shoulder. Let's just be honest here, right? And that's what they so often do with it. But Jesus doesn't do that. You know what Jesus does? He looks at the evil and he calls it evil. He looks at wickedness and sin and he calls it what it is. But he says, bring it to me and I'll redeem it. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't excuse it. He doesn't act as if it doesn't exist. He redeems it. Such that there is no evil that will ever be perpetrated in the world that God will not take and work for what? The good to those who love him who are called according to his purpose. Friends, I don't know about you, but that is a political message of otherworldly extremes. The gospel declares that in Jesus Christ, suffering, hurts, wounds, sickness, even death is never useless nor ultimate. Praise God for that. There is no greater good in this world than the gospel of Jesus Christ. The second testimony is not only of the creational narrative, but it is the testimony of God's creational command as the highest good and that each person is responsible before Him. Christians hold a specific task to declare an endued responsibility to recognize God as He has revealed Himself. Not as we have made Him and set Him up to be, but as He has said He is. And God reveals Himself in His Word by His command. You see, so often commands get purported as just what God wants us to do for Him. It's a to-do and a to-don't list. But that's not the principal purpose of commands. Commands don't teach us about ourselves until first they've introduced us and revealed a holy God. They reveal his character. They reveal his worth and the worship that he and he alone is worthy of. 
And we hold that task to declare by his word his command. You see, we're informed by two forms of revelation. First of all, special revelation. This is in the scriptures and in the gospel. We see the specifics of the character and the nature and the being and the work of God. But we are also informed by general revelation in creation. And so when we come, we understand that that science actually doesn't compete with Christianity, but science is actually a blessing from God. Now, bad science and bad scientists, well, it's just like any sin and wickedness, right? But that's what we must understand. The Bible commands that we are to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, that we are to give water to the thirsty, we're care for the sick, and on and on and on and goes. But we look to the sciences of engineering, of, of arts, of the medical field to know how it is that we should cook or how it is that we can make thread and sew, how we can dig wells, how we can perform an appendectomy or open heart surgery or, or brain surgery or, or how it is that we can create visual and visual and audible glory and bring glory to God. You see, the Christian testimony bears witness to God's command and to his creation as the source and the standard for all that is good in the world. You don't have to worry, Christian, whether God will come through if you will bear a faithful testimony to the creational commands of God and his goodness in the world and you'll point the glory of that good to him. God will come through on that. Why? Because because no one else can in the way that he will. That's why. The third testimony is that Christians testify to God's creational mandate. Our creational narrative, our creational command, the creational mandate to cultivate good in the world. Humanity is God's apex of creation. A unique kind for a particular purpose. And his creational mandate is fill the earth, subdue it, and exercise dominion. The essence of this practice is the essence of cultivating, laboring to create culture that is good. And it includes every realm and sphere of life in the sciences and, and in business and finance and economics and arts, humanities, in the medical field and craftsmanship in every way. And that does not exclude politics, but as a sphere of the public realm, it includes Politics. There are plenty, listen to me, plenty of Babel towers being erected in the world that are screaming for lesser glory and counterfeit good. But they are not of God. And the confusion that their tongues bring will be united by the gospel of Jesus Christ in His name and His name alone for His honor and His glory. And that's the witness for which we are here. Christians bear the distinct call to engage in the political process for good that proclaims God's glory and his good for all people. You see, when we devalue government or citizenship, we're actually reducing God's voice in the culture and we're simply giving over laboring for good to people who don't even know the one who in his very character and nature is good. It's like we surrender. And what I'm arguing for today is balancing Christianity with American citizenship is absolutely impossible because they are two competing kingdoms. But that's not what God has called us to and it's not why he's left us here. It's actually an incorrect framing of the narrative to see them as opposed to one another. It's not biblical at all to, 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 to set them in opposition to one another. And I'll close with this because I need to shut it down. The words of a famous politician, maybe one of the most famous presidents of 
of all, Democratic President John F. Kennedy famously stated, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Let me just be honest. That would be a phenomenal cry from even the ungodly in our day and time to stop asking what the government can do for you and what will you do for our country. But to apply it for Christ followers, I, I want to press it a little further in understanding how we prioritize our identity to exercise a faithful witness in the world through these three testimonies. And I want to say this, don't ask what would Jesus do. That's not a question that Christians need to ask. Ask rather this, what has Jesus said? What has Jesus said? Then, when you ask that question, I'm going to answer it for you already. You're welcome. Go as you are sent in the power of the Holy Spirit and make disciples of all peoples, bearing a faithful witness and preaching the gospel to all creation. Christian, have you considered how God is working in your life a stone to build you together with other stones into a spiritual dwelling to impact the world in every way for the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I want to challenge you to give deep consideration and listen to the Lord for what He is calling you to do to be His church in the world today. Let's pray.